Welcome to Discovery with Babbitt Ranches. Discovery is all things cowboy essence, people at their best, accomplishing extraordinary achievements. Cowboy essence is defined by the character qualities we admire in others. Inspired by the cowboy culture, the code that guides Babbitt Ranches. I'm Billy Cardasco. Northern Arizona is known for its diverse topography, sunny days, and windy afternoons. The region is uniquely situated with abundant potential for renewable energy resources, primarily wind and solar. Joining me in Discovery with Babbitt Ranches is an expert in clean energy. Karin Wadzak is the program manager for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Every type of energy that we use, and when I say energy, so that's electricity or fuel for our vehicles or heating for our homes or energy we use in factories, etc., there are trade-offs. We have to think about what the trade-offs are associated with getting something else, so those fuel sources, to do work for us. And we have to be honest about what those trade-offs are. Karin Wadzak is the program manager for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. We'll hear more from Karin in a moment, but first... Discovery with Babbitt Ranches is supported by the Landsward Foundation. Landsward is a nonprofit organization that promotes ecological and social science research. It provides scientific data about biology, habitats, wildlife populations, and the general environmental condition of the land. Landsward exists so that private landowners and public land managers have the latest science-based information to support decisions and conservation practices and to help all of us understand and protect the integrity and biodiversity of the environment. Returning now to our topic, renewable energy. Our guest, Karin Wadzak, has more than 20 years of experience in the renewable energy field. She has worked with local, state, federal, and tribal governments in energy policy, grid integration and modeling, economic and technical analysis, and clean energy education. Currently, she is the program manager for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory's Grid Scale Tribal Energy Program. Welcome, Karin, and thank you so very much for visiting with us today on Discovery with Babbitt Ranches. Good morning, Billy. Thanks for having me. You bet. So where are you from? I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I lived there until I was 18, and then I moved out to Virginia and went to college, and then I moved to New York briefly and then moved out to Arizona. Oh, how about that? So Madison, Wisconsin, that's a little bit of all the Leopold country. Yeah, absolutely. Have you been to the shack? I have not been to the shack. Uh, my grandmother in 1960 purchased some acreage in the Sand Counties up in Adams County, and we actually have a hunting cabin that we go up to every year. Oh, how about that? Yeah. Oh, terrific. <laughs> Any uh, cutting through oak trees with the saw and thinking about history a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. Warms you three times or something. Yeah, right, <laughs> nice. Anyway, then after high school, where did you go to college? I went to William & Mary in Virginia, in Williamsburg. What was your undergrad? I studied government, which I think is called political science everywhere else in the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good. From there, you got a little bit of oats and thought, maybe go explore the world a little bit, huh? Yeah, actually, I came out to Arizona, went to Arizona State University, did a degree there, and then lived in Flagstaff for a little while. And then I decided I wasn't doing what I really wanted to, and I joined the Peace Corps and moved to Bolivia in South America. Wow. So what was that experience all about? I loved it every single day. I was officially a volunteer under the construction desk, and I was working on a project performing construction of rainwater catchment systems with ranchers in rural southeastern Bolivia. So cattle ranchers who all lived very dispersed from one another but didn't have a good source of potable water for their families. Oh, wow. Were you about two years there then? And yeah. Probably picked up a little Spanish? 
I speak Bolivian Spanish pretty well. Spanish, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Does that come in handy here? Uh, no. Okay. That's a little, <laughs> From right. time to time. <laughs> time to time. Great. What an experience that was. Finishing up Peace Corps, you decided to get some more education. Would it start to fire up a little sustainability passion? Yeah, actually, the reason I became interested in working in renewable energy was that experience in the Peace Corps. So even though I was working in water systems at the time, I was living in a part of the world that is very heavy in oil and gas exploration. And so in those little communities of southeastern Bolivia, there are a lot of multinational corporations that are pulling a lot of oil and gas out of the area. And you see this contrast between giant companies pulling resources for other areas and local communities that don't really have access to any kind of meaningful energy source. So when I came back to the United States, I just thought, well, there has to be a better way. And I got really interested in looking at renewable energy. So that first top took you to NAU? Actually, I moved to, I moved a lot. Okay. <laughs> I moved to Ohio and I got a job at a small solar and wind installation company. So the oh, kind of company that. that does, you know, rooftop solar or we did the solar at the Cincinnati Zoo and at some factories and things like that. So nothing utility scale, like we're going to talk about later on. I pursued that job because I wanted to learn more about the nuts and bolts of renewable energy and about the policy landscape. And then while I was working in solar and wind in Ohio, I learned an awful lot about how things work in the United States and at the state level and, again, decided, well, the way our policies are set up are kind of interesting and thought I should probably go back to school and get a little bit more technical education, a little more policy education. So I came back out to Arizona and did the environmental sciences and policy program at Northern Arizona University, focusing on utility scale wind and what the policies are, economic and environmental benefits, development on tribal land and things of that nature. From there, was this about the time you were working for EMA, which is now yeah. Landsworth Foundation? Yeah, I came to NAU in 2007, and while I was doing my degree, I was looking around to find people at the university that were working on wind energy topics, and I came across the folks at what was became the Landsward Institute, and they were working on the Arizona Wind Working Group and a number of other wind-related initiatives, and so I was able to collaborate with them, and then during the course of my studies, work with them on building a bunch of additional projects that were coming in from outside funding. So I basically made myself a job at NAU, and that's what I did for the next 12 years. I remember the Met Tower that went out at Remy Jim Tank. Do you recall that at all when NAU put the Met Tower out up at Remy Jim? NAU ran the anemometer loan program for Arizona for the United States Department of Energy, and so they actually put up, I think, most of the original MET towers that existed across the entire state. I wasn't personally involved in that. I think that probably was right before I got there. MET is just a short word for meteorological. Those are towers that are typically used by a wind development company that is interested in verifying what the actual wind resource is like in a place. When it comes to solar, by and large, we know when and where the sun is going to be shining from now until the end of eternity. When it comes to wind energy, we do know at the high level what wind energy patterns are, and we all know seasonally what the wind energy patterns are. But then if you're going to build a wind farm in a specific place, you're making a significant financial investment. And so you do want to go from your modeling about the wind resource down to actual data collection. And so you put up a meteorological tower in order to 
take actual maybe every second or every 10 seconds wind speed measurements at different heights above the ground. And then you can use that to fine tune modeling that you as a company might have, let's say for that location for the last 30 years so that you can predict, well, what is it likely to look like for the next 30 years? And am I making a sound investment? So you've been studying wind and, and of course, solar as well for a very long time. And it is a passion for you. And you're greatly interested and knowledgeable about it. So with all of that, you now have a position with what people call NREL. Of course, that stands for National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And you are a program manager for them now. So what's that all about? I had the opportunity over the last couple of years while I was at Northern Arizona University to work um, with a team at NREL that was performing technical support for Native American tribes that are exploring the possibility of building large-scale renewables. And so over the course of 2019, NREL decided to hire an additional program manager to take on the umbrella management of this new tribal utility-scale renewable energy program. And so I was lucky enough to be able to apply for and obtain that position. So I left the large handful of projects that I was managing over at NAU, some of which were directly related and was able to move to NREL where I'm doing one of the things that I was doing at NAU, but I'm doing it in a much bigger way. Where is NREL located? Their headquarters are in Golden, Colorado. There's a lot of people are familiar with what was called the National Wind Technology Center, which is a little bit closer to Boulder. And it's easy to know because there are giant wind turbines and it's an invisible test facility. And that's been there for decades. And the new, I guess I would say, technical headquarters is a little bit south of there in Golden. And there are a lot of facilities at the campus, we call it, that are technical testing facilities for building energy systems or solar technologies and electric vehicle charging optimization. So it's really a living laboratory, which is exciting when you're there. There's a lot of folks listening today who are interested in this topic. And maybe we could start with a little bit of what we could call a renewable energy 101. What are the basics and really what are we talking about when we discuss renewable energy? Yeah, that sounds great. I think one thing to highlight is that renewable energy technologies are available at a lot of different scales. Some people have solar on their roofs, maybe supplying the electricity to their home or to, you know, these days their electric vehicle. That's sort of the smaller end of the scale. You can actually see wind turbines that provide electricity for someone who lives on a boat. So very small applications of renewable energy. And those we think of as distributed renewables or small scale renewables. And then what I refer to as utility scale renewables, we call it that because it's really utility in the sense of being a power plant. And That would be when we drive around and we see a wind farm or when you see um, solar panels that take up an entire section of land, several hundred acres. That's what we refer to as utility scale. And so I think that one of the basic concepts is that sense of scale and what the renewable energy technology itself is doing for us. Another basic topic is really what does renewable even mean? And these days we see a lot of governments pursuing decarbonization, so reducing the carbon dioxide emissions of the electrical system. And nuclear energy is another carbon-free energy source. But when we talk about renewables, it's important to remember that really strictly refers to natural resources that truly can generate, you know, in perpetuity. So the wind is a renewable resource because wind will always be blowing somewhere. And solar is a renewable resource because from our perspective as humans with limited lifetimes, the sun will always be shining. Would 
as biomass, as a renewable resource. There are geothermal and hydroelectric, which is harnessing the power of rivers to make electricity with a turbine. That's another renewable resource. With your policy side efforts to encourage more renewable energy development, where is that today and headed? We're seeing a giant amount of growth in the demand for renewable resources, particularly in the states surrounding Arizona. It's interesting to watch. Because we don't have a national renewable energy goal in the United States, the leadership has really been left to the states to determine whether they would like to articulate either a mandate or a voluntary goal for their electric utilities to provide electricity from renewable sources. And so in the last year, we've seen the states around us of California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Colorado all declare 100% clean energy goals. And they have usually a very, by 2045 or 2050, all of those states. And then in the interim, by around the 2030s, a lot of states are um, declaring mandatory, very high renewable standards, so 50% or 80%. And so that's Arizona right now has a standard that was put in place in 2006 that aspired to reach 15% renewables by 2025. And the powers that be in Arizona, which is the governing body called the Arizona Corporation Commission, is right now exploring the idea of dramatically increasing that standard, but that's not very aggressive compared to these other goals that I just mentioned. And those are going to drive a a huge amount of growth in renewable energy project development, and most of that will be at that utility scale that I mentioned earlier, the power plant scale, in order to ramp it up as quickly as we need to. And those will also drive a lot of changes in the way that we need to manage our electrical system so that we can bring on those renewable sources, especially variable sources like wind and solar, in the way that is the most cost-effective for all of the people that use electricity and in the way that is the most reliable and safe for the electrical system. Are there challenges that we're looking at that need to be addressed and worked through in order to accomplish this task? Absolutely challenges, because we're talking about making a wholesale change to our power supply. And historically, the way that we manage our electrical system is that we build power plants that are fueled by natural gas or coal or nuclear energy, and by and large, we can turn them on and off as we need to. And I think back to what are some of the basics, a lot of us don't realize that when you're thinking about the power system, when we use electricity, it actually has to be generated at the instant that we're using it. It's not like rice or corn or some other thing that we use where it can be stored and then we can use it you know, when we need it. Electricity has to be generated right when it's being used. And so that requires a very elaborate balancing of the electrical system in order to maintain reliable power for everybody and make sure that our appliances work in the way they should and everything is safe. With the change from those power plants that we can functionally just turn on and off or turn up and down at will to using sources like wind energy or solar energy where the resource itself really determines when it's available and other than us deciding to turn it off, we can't really control it that much That means that we have to then balance the rest of the electrical system to respond to those changes. And so some of the advances that we're seeing are much better forecasting of what a solar power plant or a wind power plant is likely to be producing either an hour from now or tomorrow or next week than we had a decade or so ago. 
Um, and then a lot of other technologies on the power system and changes in the way that we operate our electrical system that enable us to respond to those, to balance the system. Recently, see a little bit more about storage mm-hmm. and battery storage to try to help capture some of this energy, for example, maybe with solar yeah. during the day and be able to take the uh, excess or the extra, so to speak, that is being produced during the day that then can be stored and then maybe that switch be turned on. So some technology is coming along that's going to help maybe flatten out some of these variables. Is there other things besides storage or is that the the big effort right now is to try to figure out how to store some of this power? I think storage is critical to being able, as you just suggested, to take some of that electricity so that we don't have to just turn it off if we have too much on the system and so that we can manage the other types of power plants without causing you know, trouble on the electrical system. There are a lot of different potential storage technologies. If you think about a lump of coal or natural gas, those are actually stored energy, right? And if you think about a dam with water behind it, that's stored energy. And so we have battery storage that we hear about a lot in the news right now, but hydroelectric power is functionally another type of storage. And there have been historically pumped hydroelectric systems where water is actually, when there is surplus energy, just like you were talking about with the solar, you could take surplus energy, dump it into a battery, and discharge it later when when the system needs it. You can use surplus electricity to pump water uphill or into a reservoir, and then when you do need that electricity, you can run it down and run turbines to make electricity. So there's a lot of different technologies, and we're going to need a lot more storage on the system right now, and I think one of the concerns that a lot of people have is the material cost of batteries and recyclability or toxicity or is it dangerous to get the materials or are there political challenges etc so i think really the holy grail of batteries is finding technologies that are benign from a material standpoint so there isn't anything terribly unhealthy about obtaining the materials or using them and at the end of the day those materials are recyclable So that's probably too much detail on batteries, but I think that really is, we're seeing a lot of work on battery research, and I think that's where we're going. But there are a lot of other changes that can be made in how we use energy that can facilitate a rapid transition to renewables or to a decarbonized electrical system. And so we're seeing a lot more electric vehicles on the system, and it's not far off that we'll be not only having the power company help us figure out when is best for us to charge those vehicles in order to help with the management of the system, but also having two-way technology so we can not just charge the vehicles, but we could even be sending electricity back from our vehicles, again, to help balance that system. This involves a lot of data and a lot of coordination of data across small and large parts of the electrical system, but it's there are parts of the world where right now the power company has control over a large number of water heaters that are electrical and uses those to help charge and discharge and balance the system in order to bring on more wind energy or more solar energy. So I think we're going to see a lot more integration of all the different technologies that we use and particularly those that use electricity. You mentioned the grid Mm -hmm. and how all that works. That is another area that is being looked at and addressed, trying to understand better. How do we make a a more modern, futuristic grid? What might be involved in that? 
Our electrical system, if you think of it as just, it's a whole bunch of poles and wires that are stringing around the country, and there's power plants positioned here and there, and then everywhere we use electricity, we think of, we call that a load, but that's kind of like taking electricity out of the system, and there's other parts that are putting it in. And one of the complexities is that those wires don't have unlimited capacity. Each wire is larger or smaller, and we need to be able to get as much electricity as we want to make to the locations where we want to use it, as I mentioned earlier, instantaneously. And so we will need to see some very basic changes, such as potentially just upgrading the electrical system, putting in some more wires. And people aren't really fans of transmission lines. Nobody really wants to look at that. But then once you actually are in an area where they've been there for a long time, you realize you don't actually see them. <laughs> you know? yeah, right. I think that's something that we are going to have to accept. But there's a lot of research going into optimizing that. And what I mean by optimizing is making the best use of the least amount of equipment at the least cost. And so rather than four different companies stringing four different sets of wires across some beautiful area where we really would prefer not to have wires, is there some other way that we could just stick four batteries in places where we already have wires and not have to put anything up? Or could we just put up one smaller wire somewhere and think about how we manage the electrical system differently and decide how much everybody's allowed to use in different areas differently such that we don't have to overbuild the system. And I think there's a lot of discussion today about resilience and concern about whether should we have this system where we have a few, to exaggerate, we have a few giant power plants, we have long lengths of wire, and the places where we use electricity are not where we generate it. And does that make our system vulnerable? So I think we will see a move toward a lot more. You know, renewable energy plants, typically, even if they're a couple hundred megawatts, typically that's a much smaller generator than Palo Verde Nuclear Power Plant, which is over 4,000 megawatts of generating capacity, to put those in perspective. So we'll see more smaller generators mm -hmm. spread around the system, and we'll see management of those generators and the wires in such a way that we are that it's a little bit more resilient than just having a couple really big power plants. Another area that is addressed in the development of renewable energy has to do with mitigation. The effects of, for example, mm -hmm. wind turbines and maybe solar panels in some cases and certainly with dams and downstream river yeah. systems and things like that. So what kind of work is taking place in those areas these days? I think it's important to think about the fact that with every type of energy that we use, and when I say energy, so that's electricity or fuel for our vehicles or heating for our homes or energy we use in factories, et cetera, there are trade-offs. And at the end of the day, we're trying to get something else to do work for us. So we're trying to get something for nothing or something for very little. And we have to think about what the trade-offs are associated with getting something else, so those fuel sources, to do work for us. And we have to be honest about what those trade-offs are. Every single potential source of electricity, just to focus on that, that we use has positives and negatives. And I think a lot of work is going into identifying more clearly what those negative impacts are so that we can make informed decisions and we can clear-headedly move forward with deciding whether to pursue or not pursue a particular energy infrastructure. That sounds like a vague answer, so I'll give some concrete examples. When it comes to wind energy, there are some wind power plants 
particularly in certain parts of California that were built several decades ago that are in areas where there are large populations of migrating birds during different parts of the year. And those plants were put up because there's also a fantastic wind resource there, and there was interest in renewable energy. But that was put up at a time when there, there wasn't as strong of a set of environmental regulations to encourage monitoring of what wildlife populations might be or what some of those negative impacts might be before the wind plant was in place. And so consequently, we have some wind power plants in some areas of the country, largely that have been put up some time ago, that have unfortunately had very negative impacts on bird populations or bat populations. And so there's a lot of research going on into understanding population dynamics better, understanding when and where different wildlife species are located at different times of the year and where they're likely to be so that we can, first of all, just not build things in places where we know they're going to cause problems. Or so that if we do end up building something somewhere where there may be a minor problem, there may be some other technological solution that we can use to address it. So that's a very strong area of research. And I think that for just using the wind industry as an example, it's a black eye to have wind farms that are causing mortality to species of great concern, like bald eagles or golden eagles or bats that are threatened or endangered. I do want to mention, though, that while there have been avian and bat mortalities at wind farms, particularly some that have been built some time ago. Overall, the incidence of particularly eagle mortality with wind farms is actually very, very low. I think over the last four decades of wind energy development, there may be a handful of cases of bald eagle mortality that have been documented. And over 90% of the wind farms across the United States have never had an impact on a golden eagle. So that incidence is actually pretty limited and is something that is a very strong area of focus for the wind industry. And their technology, just even in the turbines themselves and some of their radar equipment Mm -hmm. and other things have also been a great help in making any kind of adjustments to their impacts towards wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. There are radar systems that can be used to try to identify wildlife as that's coming into an area. There are technologies for changing the way that wind turbines operate if wildlife are identified or if there is a known presence of animals during a certain time of the year. So a specific bat population of concern that is migrating during a certain time of year at a certain wind speed at certain heights above the ground. That can be established and then the wind farm operation can actually be modified to avoid causing negative impacts. There's an institute called the American Wind Wildlife Institute, and it was established a decade or so ago. And that institute is a collaboration between the wind industry, federal agencies, and nonprofit wildlife protection agencies. And their work is to advance the science surrounding the impact of wind on wildlife in order to, as quickly as possible, reduce those negative impacts. And they do a fantastic job of updating this research synopsis. So it's just a couple pages, and they, as research comes out, they immediately use it to update the synopsis that they publish on their website. So people who are interested in learning more about wind and wildlife and understanding what is the status quo of the research, what do we know, what do we not know. And it's nice because it's a digest. You don't have to be a scientist, and you don't have to spend a lot of time to learn about that. And they're very fair in their presentation of what really is well understood and what is not well understood. With all of these positives renewable energy provides in the future, and with the adjustment and the advances in technology and all the learning that is coming along with the restructuring of the grid and all these things, one area that still seems to just kind of be A little bit elusive is on the social component when it comes to, for example, aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And in areas that are maybe pretty and have a sense of place to them and so on and so forth, but have the wind 
or solar opportunities associated with them. How do you present these projects to them that, yeah, you're going to see some turbines here for a while and they're doing a good thing? How do you approach that conversation? I think that's a great question, and I think it really depends on the location. I think that in a lot of places, something like a wind farm or a big solar project might be entirely appropriate because it's an area that is very, very low visitation or that is already been impacted by other uses. So it may not be something that where that really has a negative visual impact, but there are other areas where it just isn't appropriate. So inside of our national parks, it's probably not appropriate to advocate for putting a wind farm or solar project or something else that would have that kind of big visual impact. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? So in my view, a wind farm isn't something that I think of as horrendously ugly, but that may be my personal bias because I've been working in wind for 12 years. But I think that it's a question of trade-offs again. And I do think in the United States, in particular in the West, private property rights are really important. And I think that sometimes people will buy a vacation home in a beautiful area and think about that view in that area as being something that they bought along with their home. Experiences with my cabin up in Wisconsin, we have 120 acres and we don't really, there's been cell towers that have gone up around us with flashing lights or there's a some kind of potato processing factory that for mysterious reasons has lights on 24 hours a day. And fortunately, it's not our place to judge what other people can do with their own private property. Think about it, unless the place that you own is literally surrounded by wilderness, and if it is, that probably means you were there first, but unless that's the case, if you're planning to own a property for many, many decades, the only reasonable expectation that you have is that your view is going to change, right? Things around you are going to change, and I think that if you take into account all the different sources of electricity that we use and the over time impacts that those have on the visual environment when it comes to mountaintop removal or mine tailings or pollution and its effect on air visibility or on animals or plants, etc. The impacts of a couple or even several or hundreds of wind farms is something that you just have to compare that and decide whether that's something that you're willing to live with. Earlier when we were starting off, you were talking about the fact that we are seeing shutdowns in a lot of coal plants around the West, and frankly, around the United States, around the world. And so Navajo Generating Station just shut down in Arizona, and we're going to see the Choya Power Plant shut down. We're going to see in northwestern New Mexico, San Juan Generating Station and Four Corners Power Plant shut down. And there's two points, I think, that are worth making about that coal shutdown that are positives, right? Because we know that those disappearances of the mines and the plants have a lot of negative impact on communities in terms of lost jobs and lost local economic activity and lost revenue to counties or states. But I think some of the positives that we can think about are that that opens up space on our electricity transmission lines. And as I mentioned earlier, the system is limited and sometimes there are circumstances where we may not be able to adopt as much renewable energy as we want because there's a limit in the size of a transmission wire that goes from one place to another to bring electricity from that source of making electricity to the place where it would be used. And so one of the upsides of the shutdown of coal plants is that it opens up space electrically on those wires for us to be able to bring on a lot more renewable energy. And so that's a positive in that means we'll be able to bring on more renewables without having to build a lot more power lines across our country. 
the consequent upside of being able to build more renewables is that renewable energy does generate significant economic activity, either for the folks who are the owners or managers of the land where renewable energy power plants are built, or for the governing jurisdictions in the area in the form of taxes. So if you have a wind farm or a solar power plant that's built out here, we have a lot of checkerboard land, so you might have a project or power plant that's built on land that is private land, checkerboarded with state land, checkerboarded with BLM or some other federal land. And so in the case of that wind farm, there would be payments that would be made every year to the private landowner, to the state, and to the federal government. And in some cases, we've got ranches out west that are struggling to maintain themselves financially and may be facing either subdividing or breaking up. And so looking at wind development is one way to be able to maintain the integrity of some of our historic Western ranches. And I think that actually gets back to something I had wanted to mention about aesthetics. And I think, to me, an existing ranch or checkerboard land, a historic ranch could be subdivided and made into a whole lot of homes or other businesses or whatever. The wind energy development actually preserves a wide open space. So yes, you're going to have wind turbines, but you're also maintaining the integrity of that open land as a ranch and or a ranch checkerboarded with state or federal land. And then with respect to the economic benefit there, the rancher can get a payment and the state land department, at least in Arizona, state land department, when they receive payments for renewable energy, that goes directly to support our school systems. And I think all of us can agree that's a good thing. And you know, at the federal level, if there's wind on a BLM land, there's a structure for making payments that also then go back to support the functions of the BLM. And projects pay property taxes too. So that now Navajo County and Coconino County are losing a significant amount of property tax due to the shutdown of the Cayenta mine and the Navajo generating station. And so if we do see a lot more renewable energy development in our region due to all those state renewable energy goals I mentioned earlier, that provides a potential source of long-term stable revenue that the county, they can count on that from the taxes associated or payments in lieu of taxes associated with those projects. With all of that, if you were visiting with the owners of Babbitts or mm-hmm. some other landowner, what would be your key points to say to them, say, on getting involved with renewable energy? Landowners can go out and pursue renewable energy if that's something that's of interest. I think it's really important for landowners to consider maybe having a list of questions. Of questions first to sit down and have a serious conversation about their own values and what it is that they're trying to accomplish with their land and whether renewable energy would meet those goals or could, you know, in a creative way help to meet some of their goals associated with their values. And I think that secondarily to that, it's incumbent upon landowners to do some background research. So find out potentially from other landowners or landowner associations what their experience has been working with renewable energy developers. To my knowledge, there isn't a how-to book for this, right? And certainly the information about how those arrangements between a landowner and a commercial developer, which after all is typically private or publicly held company, but a commercial enterprise, those agreements aren't necessarily public. The structure of the agreement, the payment details, etc. And so I think that Landowners really should do some research. There are resources out there with the National Wind Association, so American Wind Energy Association, or the Solar Energy Industries Association that can provide some guidance to landowners on what do these projects look like, what kind of impacts might they have, what might a typical payment structure look like. But you can also reach out to other landowners who've had that experience and have a conversation. 
In New Mexico, there was an organization of landowners that actually banded together because each of them didn't necessarily have enough land acreage on their own to offer up for a large-scale wind farm. And so they worked together to then try and go out as a, a unified front to the wind development industry and say, hey, you know, we've got an awful lot of land and we're also all talking to each other and we'd like to, um, you know, put this out there. So kind of putting themselves in the driver's seat. Karin, what's the most exciting project you got going right now? Ooh, that's a good question. My job is to manage a program that is supporting Native American tribes in exploring utility-scale renewable energy. And so within the context of my job at NREL, I have been working with the Navajo Nation and the Hopi tribe, and we just started partnering with the Saboba Band of Luisinio Indians in California and the Shoshone Bannock tribes up in Idaho. And so... And I wouldn't be able to pick a winner among the four of those, but it's just really exciting work because each project is different. The context within which each of those tribes located or is considering building renewables is different. So there's a lot of, you know me, I like to do a lot of research and I'm always curious learning about the power system or the different policies, et cetera. And so each of those has all those questions embedded into it. So it's just like, it's like getting paid to do geeky research. (laughs) How does wind and solar energy fit with tribal values? That is entirely tribally dependent. So I think some Native American tribes are interested in renewable energy because of the fact that it can dovetail with their value of environmental stewardship. And so if they're going to be using electricity or energy of other sources, if those sources are renewable, it helps to promote stewardship of the environment. Tell us about your efforts with some of the students at NAU and some of their competitions they participated in. Well, I was at NAU for five years. I was the lead for something called the Collegiate Win Competition. And that was a project in which undergraduate students in our engineering business and sometimes political science or environmental sciences would form a team together. And this is a national competition invented maybe six or seven years ago and hosted by the United States Department of Energy. And teams across the country would compete to design a small wind turbine and then in some years build a business plan for a scaled up version of that wind turbine or in some years design a mock 100 megawatt wind farm in an area near their university. And a couple of those years, our team at Northern Arizona University worked with Babbitt Ranches in order to design their mock 100 megawatt wind farm. And so they would schedule meetings with the Babbitt Ranches organization, and they would schedule meetings with the county to go through the, a mock exercise of getting permitting for the wind farm, and they would make presentations as though they were an actual development company. And it was just a really powerful experience for those students to go through that exercise and really drink from the fire hose in terms of learning everything that you need to get up to speed to go to a competition eight months after you start the project and to be able to represent yourself in that way. So I think they really got a lot out of being able to work directly with our county folks and to be able to, with Babbitt Ranches, and act as though they were developers. It was fun. What does Arizona's future look like for renewable energy? It would be a cliche to say it's bright. <laughs> I think it's interesting because at the state level, as a you know, Arizona doesn't have a very aggressive renewable energy goal right now, but I think that's about to change. The state is considering a higher standard, and it may go to a much higher renewable energy standard. 
and the electrical system is connected. And so all those states around us that have very aggressive renewable energy goals are going to drive the opportunity for renewable energy development in Arizona. So I think that anyone who is interested in renewable energy development in our state has the opportunity to be a part of this. And it's going to be our choice individually as landowners or as local governments or county governments or as a state what level we want to play in that part of our economy. This is a huge area of economic growth for the United States and it's a different way to participate in the economy and it doesn't replace some of the other ways that are going away but it is definitely an opportunity and I think that we're going to see a lot more interest from those developers in building solar and wind. Landowners can do more background research and find out more about the industry in order, as I mentioned, to put themselves in the driver's seat. Karm, thank you very, very much for being here today. I've enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to future visits. Thank you, Billy. The pleasure is entirely mine. It's been really fun. I'd like to also thank our supporter, the Landsworth Foundation promoting scientific endeavors, and disseminating helpful data to public land managers and private landowners. Our guest has been Karn Wadzak, a program manager for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, specializing in grid-scale tribal energy. You've been listening to Discovery with Babbitt Ranches, a monthly podcast exploring all things cowboy essence in land stewardship, conservation, science, agriculture, recreation, business, and community. It's through our efforts of learning and understanding, Babbitt Ranches, a family business and pioneering land company, raises livestock, manages natural resources, promotes science, and participates in the broader community in order to join, share, and to do the very best we know how. Thank you for listening. I'm Billy Cardasco.